the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, welcome back Thursday, July 8th as we head into Hour 2 of our daily three-hour tour. It's a delight to welcome to the show Brooke Rollins. She is the CEO and president of the America First Policy Institute, which is uh, assisting, helping, and supporting President Trump's class action lawsuit that was announced, I guess it was yesterday, that's right, yesterday, against social media and big tech firms. Uh, Brooke, welcome to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm so glad to be with you, Seth. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I, I don't think I've had you on my Phoenix show, and I've followed you for a long time. You've had, like, pretty much the coolest job any conservative activist could have over the last 30 years. You keep finding these great, cool jobs. And as I ask first-time <laughs> guests, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, how, how you came to be, what you're doing, how you grew up, and um, what you are doing right now. Well, Seth, it's so funny. I say that all the time. I'm like, how does this keep happening? I literally <laughs> have the best job in the world, and I have felt that way for 20-something years. Yeah. So, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. You know, I was on a Sweet Bill Bennett show for a long, many, many times, and I think we probably crossed paths there quite a bit, uh, you know, some years ago. Yes, but that's right. I, uh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Listen, I was Rick Perry, his first policy director, um, very quickly out of law school many years ago. And then for 15 years, ran the Texas Public Policy, which is a conservative think tank in Texas. A great one. And, Just uh, fantastic work. Well, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And that, that thank you, that 15-year build, I started with three employees, planned to never leave. Of course, God often has other plans. You bet. And, and when I left for the White House to join uh, President Trump three years ago, uh, we had over 100 employees and really uh, probably the largest, at least the most effective, if not one of the most effective in the country. And then, yeah, stepped away from that after I was asked to join the White House and was basically told, just come build within the West Wing what you've built yeah. in Texas. Yeah. And <laughs> put, put a little Texas arms. in Washington. I love it. That's yeah. exactly, yeah. That was yeah. exactly yeah. how they pitched it yeah. to me. And uh, I said, well, gracious, how do you say no to that? That's yeah. unbelievable. And, of course, you know, President Trump is such a disruptor and so transformative. And, and what we had built in Texas over all those years was the the model, frankly, that we ended up using in Washington, that lower taxes and less government and fighting for school choice and fighting for a health care system where you pick your doctor, the government doesn't. I mean, all that we've made so much progress on in Texas through the years that uh, we just did that in Washington. So that was amazing. Every day I woke up and said, I think I have A, the best job in the White yeah. House, which B, the best job yeah. in the country. Yeah. It was amazing. I was his domestic policy chief. And then uh, once it looked like we weren't going to stay for a second term, uh, my good friends Larry Kudlow, Linda McMahon, Rick Perry, lots of us in the administration really gathered around a table and said, how do we keep this momentous good. movement, good. transformative policy change going? Good and decided to launch the America First Policy Institute. So here we are. I think that's great. And let me tell the audience they can visit it at AmericaFirstPolicy.com. AmericaFirstPolicy.com. Brooke Rollins is their CEO, president. 
I know exactly how this works, and it, you guys are off to a great start. We did this. This is how I met Bill and, and Jack Kemp. We, we did this with Empower America right after the Reagan-Bush years. We, we, they started Empower America with Gene Kirkpatrick, and they wanted to create that shadow government representing that point of view uh, during the Clinton years. And you're doing it during what hopefully will be a very, very, very few Biden years. But, Brooke, the president – announced a really interesting, unique lawsuit yesterday against social media. Thank goodness. Thank gosh he's doing it. You guys are supportive of it. Tell us about this lawsuit. It's about reclaiming our free speech rights. Well, that's right. So yesterday in Bedminster, New Jersey, I think it was a one of, frankly, I think it will go down as one of the most monumental days, at least in public policy and in our lifetime, Seth. We had long talked about, you know, the, the big tech, the big three, but more, more than just those three. But those three were named yesterday, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Google, clearly censoring Americans, clearly censoring those from the conservative point of view. And, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And Seth, I know you know this too, being so long in the conservative movement. Our side has never been great about utilizing the judiciary the way that the left has. Correct. And you know, when I was in Texas, I finally figured that out, and we launched uh, we launched a litigation team in Texas that was married to our policy organization. So about two months ago, as we were really talking very seriously with the president, I started looking for really good lawyers. I knew that we were not going to have the uh, background, the depth, the experience needed to run a real class action. But we started to think, you know, this could be a monumental change in using the judiciary to protect the First Amendment to protect everyday Americans and do it through a class action with Donald Trump as the lead class rep. I mean, that's, that's a, that's, that's nobody, nobody has ever done that before. It's unprecedented. And uh, to the president's credit, he, of course, uh, former president's credit, he leaned right in, said, I am all in. Uh, Since we announced yesterday, Seth, we've had 30,000 people, 30,000 reach out to our website, takeonbigtech.com, share their stories. Uh, we believe not only that we're going to win this case at the Supreme Court, but we believe in doing so, we keep the narrative and the framing moving forward so Americans understand what's at stake. We're talking to uh, Brooke Rollins. That's that fantastic. Thank you uh, from America First. Brooke, um, it is a, in some respects uh, a newsmaking lawsuit, not just because of the defendants, not just because of the plaintiffs, but because of the legal theories involved here. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this. You're a skilled attorney yourself. Talk to us a little bit about the theory that most people start off with in saying, as you've probably heard enough times to make you sick, well, it's a pri- these are private companies and the First Amendment doesn't apply. Well, this is a different case, and here's why. There is a, there is a rule, a law on the books called Rule 230, mm-hmm. and it was part of the 1996 Communications Act. Mm-hmm. And back then, the Internet was brand new. There were only a, hand, you know, a couple million people, not billions, who used it. And Mark Zuckerberg was in elementary school. No one had even considered the concept of a Facebook or a Twitter or a Google or basically a handful of companies completely controlling the public narrative. None of that was even on the radar, right? So they passed Section 230. It is to protect against child uh, traffickers, child pornography, to ensure that this new Internet could not be used under the First Amendment to traffic children. And it basically gave private companies the right to say, no, you can't do this on my Internet, on my company's, you know, Internet. And that's what Section 230 was used for. Well, fast forward to today, you know, however many decades later, a handful of decades later, and that 
same law on the book, Section 230, is what these companies are using to say that they can censor everyday Americans, that they can censor Jen, the school teacher from Michigan, who posted the question, why is why are my children having to wear masks all day? They, they you know, censored the, the family from Florida whose son was killed by illegal immigrants and asking the question, why why do we have such a horrible um, immigration issue in this country, an illegal immigration issue? They get censored. I mean, it is that it's remarkable. And now we're really seeing it with these tens of thousands of Americans saying, I just posted, or, I retweeted something on the, the Wuhan, Wuhan lab leak theory, censored, pulled down. And of course, you know, we could go into a long conversation about the president. But that's what makes this different, is that they are using the Section 230 to shroud themselves in a protection to be able to censor everyday Americans. And that's why the First Amendment comes into play and why this suit is so important. That's a great point, Brooke, uh, and I appreciate you making it because there are certain principles in the law um, that whether they've been used, whether they're tired, whether they've been retired for a while, they've never been overruled. And the fact is that there are certain things private corporations can do to lose that that veil of protection. You can pierce veils of private institutions when they act like the government or when they do and are directed, in fact, by the government to do that which the government knows it cannot do. And I think Section 230, myself, my own reading of it, has turned, in fact, big tech into a state actor. And it's going to be it's it's going to be a hell of an argument. But I think it's a good one. And I think it's long overdue. Well, and I think the Supreme Court has really been looking for this case. I, I mean, uh, Justice Thomas, I believe, in, in multiple dissents, basically has said, please send me, please send us a case. Please send us a case where we can make this decision. And, and you're exactly right, Seth. The way you just framed that is exactly why this case is different, because they are acting uh, as government actors. We have emails that we now have from Mark Zuckerberg directly to Anthony Fauci mm-hmm. during the pandemic, mm-hmm. basically saying, let's coordinate here. Tell us what we should be taking down off of people's Facebooks when they're reposting, whether it's about hydroxychloroquine, about masks, about the lab leak theory. I mean, there is no doubt there was acting in concert and that they cannot do. And so if this case makes it way through the makes its way through the courts, more information on that will come out. We'll be able to tell the stories of censorship of everyday Americans. And I think in, in so doing, we take this country back. The interesting thing is that this is really an issue that is polling in the mid-70s. About 75% of Americans of now believe that these companies have way too much power and that they are censoring based on political beliefs. If you think about that number, you know, obviously probably almost all Republicans or conservatives are there. But the other 50% of the country, you've got half of the Democrats yeah. who believe well. That's a pretty staggering number. There isn't much today that it can poll around 75 percent the way this is. Well, I'm guessing some Democrats were a little ticked off that their children weren't allowed to go to school and that the NEA and the AFT weren't allowing them to go to school. I'm, I'm guessing. And the reason I make that point, Brooke, I'd love your thought on this. The reason I make that point is if you look at the big cases that we would call censorship from social media, if you look at the big ones, the the Hunter Biden stuff, the Wuhan uh, virology lab, if you look at uh, even 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 issues having to do with mental health, masks and uh, and the transmission of coronavirus, if you look at that, which was censored right by the big tech companies, primarily YouTube, Facebook and Twitter, it all turned out to be more right than wrong. Our side, that which was censored turned out to be more true than not. 
and in fact, in some cases, absolutely true. They were actually literally shutting down political conversation in their own minds, but they were also shutting down the truth, which had huge public health consequences that we aren't even beginning to be able to uncover yet. I saw a research piece, I don't know, maybe a month ago, Seth, that said that two-thirds of the deaths from COVID could have been avoided if those patients had been put on hydroxy um, towards the beginning of their illness. Two-thirds of the deaths. Now, think about the consequences of that. I mean, we're not getting into that in our lawsuits, mm-hmm. but that's pretty stunning. And when you had an administration like ours and a president that we, you know, that I worked for, President Donald Trump, who was basically leaning into the alternative, you know, drugs like hydroxy, and you had big tech censoring that, and then now all these months later, he was right. Uh, it wasn't effective solution and it should have been part of at least the dialogue from the very beginning and it was censored and then you think about well i mean we're talking about covid right now but they're censoring on critical race theory you know one one of my great friends um, from the administration russ vote started a new organization providing toolkits to parents on how to ask the right questions what what your children are learning and he was taken off of twitter for that i mean Seth, this is not america this is not democracy this is not freedom this is what happens under tyranny. Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, uh, Brooke, so we're talking to Brooke Rollins uh, from the American uh, First uh, Policy Institute. AmericanFirstPolicy.com is her website. Brooke, uh, uh, of this, there's there's no question. And one of the fun things I did just to experiment around this notion was I went to a bunch of Marxist websites and socialist websites to find out what their views of free speech were. To a T, all of them say we believe in free speech that supports the party line. Freedom of speech for those who are Marxists, in other words, for those who already believe the leftist agenda or the liberal left agenda. They have this trick. So I want to kind of ask you, can I ask you a philosophical question, Brooke? You have all the right training for it, because this is what I see. And I want I'd love your opinion on it. What I see here is an effort by the progressive movement to remove conservatism from legitimate political policy discussions by tarring tainting and labeling all conservatives, all Republicans, as best they can, as engaged in either white power movements, white supremacy, racism. You get this by dint of seeing protesters calling us fascists, calling us worse than Hitler. You get this marginalization of conservatives so that they're not really even part of the American polity anymore, and thus we're easier to censor, shut up, or make um, personas non grata. Isn't that kind of what's going on here, Brooke? There's no doubt in my mind that you're a thousand percent right. And I believe, and having seen it firsthand, you know, I, I traveled with the president pretty significantly, went to a lot of President Trump, went to a lot of his rallies with him. And it was a movement, Seth, and, and, and realizing that, you know, some of his rhetoric was unconventional and turned a lot of people off. But at the end of the day, the passion that was inspired um, from people who had never considered being a Republican or being a conservative, you know, doubling the black vote for him as president, um, increasing the Hispanic vote by a third, the, of course, the blue collar following. We really had flipped on its head the entire narrative that conservatives were for the, the white business corporate elite and the Democrats were for the, you know, the, the blue collar average American worker. Mm-hmm. That was no longer the case under Trump. And I think that the panic that ensued from the left when they saw that 
40 percent of the people lining up to go to a Trump rally had never voted in a Republican primary before. And in so doing, they saw the the power that had been amassed and and the sort of the, the smoke and mirrors they had pulled on their people and their voters was dissipating under this very unexpected, you know, businessman from New York City who rode down on an escalator into history, right? Mm-hmm. And and in that ensuing panic, they realized that, you know, when that happens, you sort of see all the the, the crazy lunacy and the, and the idea that we're all racist and part of white supremacy. I mean, that's what you see coming out. And I think that's a direct reaction to the fact that we had begun to break coalitions that Republicans had never been able yep. to do before. You betcha. You betcha. It's amazing what truth can do, right, Brooke? Well, That's right. Well, Brooke, Godspeed on this lawsuit. I would love this, now that we've become reacquainted, to be a down payment and contact you uh, more often and have you join us more often. It's wonderful, wonderful talking to you. Well, great to talk to you, too, and to all of your listeners in Phoenix. And thanks for your long work and, and, and freedom fighting and being a warrior for the for the good and truthful cause. It's an honor to be with you. Well, I'll be, uh, I'll be happy when I accomplish as much as you, Brooke Rollins. But before we get into too much mutual corruption, let me wish you a very happy Thursday, and we will talk soon. Thank you so much. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. In other legal news, Michael Avenatti, do you remember that name? He started off representing Stormy Daniels, and then he expanded from there. I believe he uh, represented, I don't believe, I know he represented several women who had fake stories to peddle and penned about Brett Kavanaugh. And he was lost as the savior of the republic by CNBC and MSNBC and NBC and CBS and ABC. Here's a reminder, and I'll tell you where he ended up today. Here's a reminder. He's Donald Trump's worst nightmare. Michael Avenatti. Joining us once again is Michael Avenatti. Let's bring in Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti, thank you very much. He's out there saving the country. Don Meacham says he may be the savior of the republic. You are something of a folk hero now. I owe Michael Avenatti an apology. I've been saying enough already, Michael. I've seen you everywhere. What do you have left to say? I was wrong, brother. You have a lot to say. I uh, am just dying to hear what you think. These people all like you. I'm the only person right here Donald Trump fears more than Robert Miller. We think you guys are the tip of the spear that's going to take down Donald Trump. Right. Michael Avenatti's a beast. Okay, that's true. And he, He's a beast. I think He's we get beast. the picture. I could keep doing that. But today he was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Tip of the spear. Pretty blunt spear. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. That was Meatloaf's uh, big comeback song, right, from the Bad Out of Hell album in 1977. Forward, he didn't do too much until that song, 1994, I want to say. It was a huge comeback, him and uh, Jim Steinman. uh, I've seen Meatloaf a few times. It's... uh, It's... um, it's a better voice on record than in concert. I just don't think you can sustain that kind of voice for that long. So those live concerts aren't uh, what maybe they used to be in the uh, 1970s. Uh, big news item today. The networks covered it mostly in full, or at least the cable networks did, and that was President Biden's uh, efforts, pre- President Biden's uh 
uh, statements and uh, and uh, move to remove all U.S. forces out of Afghanistan. I would love to have your opinion of this because I'm 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 very conflicted about it. I I'll I'll just I'll just be honest with you, not knowing uh, where most of you are. I'll tell you my perspective, and I'd love to hear yours. Uh, and more likely you're right and I'm not. But my perspective is this. 20 years is an awfully long time when there's a lot of mission creep and a lot of evidence that we cannot accomplish what we set out to accomplish. That having been said, let's do away with some of the revisionism here, shall we? Joe Biden said the mission was accomplished when we killed bin Laden. He said that today. We killed bin Laden in 2011. He was the vice president in 2011. And there were several more years of that administration. There was the year 2012. There was the year 2013. There was the year 2014. There was the year 2015. And there was the year 2016. They had five years, if that was the mission's ending, five years to do it then. And it would have perhaps been a much more opportune time to do it then. Because while I'm not against it in theory, I'm against it in the tactic of now, in the tactic of right now, where the Afghanistan government is at best feeble, where the Taliban is at worst strengthening and moving on Afghanistan, and where the top U.S. military commander in Afghanistan, General Scott Miller, Austin Miller, said the country of Afghanistan was about to face very hard times because the civilian leadership was not able to get its act together in controlling the Taliban. Now, Joe Biden, again, today, said we accomplished our objectives and it's time to go. What to him was the objective? He said it was to bring Osama bin Laden to the gates of hell and to eliminate al-Qaeda's ability to launch more attacks on the U.S. from that territory. We accomplished both of those things today, Joe Biden said. Those were the objectives. Were they? Were they the objectives when the Congress passed the authorization for use of military force. Were they the objectives when President Bush in October of 2001 announced our invasion into Afghanistan? I ask that because I know they weren't. In fact, the very first sentence of George Bush's address to the nation on October 7th in 2001 was this. My orders... On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted attacks are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. Those were the first sentence and the second sentence of the address to the nation on why we went into the into Af, into the country Afghanistan. Have we accomplished that? We have not. We've not. We have at various times. We are not there right now with the Taliban growing in strength 
and the Afghanistan government crumbling and unable to control more and more of its territory. Over 2,300 Americans died in trying to help liberate Afghanistan. Going now, leaving now, we already gave up Bagram Air Force Base. Leaving now with the Taliban on the rise and the government's power on the on the shrink? Is that the smart thing to do? Or is it indeed something very much akin to Saigon 1975? You guys tell me. 602-508-0960. I want your opinion on this. Mass killings, torture, disappearances, mayhem, acid in women's faces, destruction of thousand-year-old Buddhist statues. That's the human rights record of the Taliban. I don't think there has been a year. I don't think there has been one year, at least since 2000. Or no, let me go back to when the Taliban took power. I don't think there's been one year since 1998. 96, 96, 97, 98. I don't think there's been one year since 1998 that the Taliban haven't engaged in torturing of women trying to learn or become literate. John is passing through Phoenix from San Diego. It's lovely to have you, John. I'm sorry you're going in the wrong direction, but welcome. Well, it's, it's all relative. You know, the temperature is nice. It's only about 30 degrees warmer out here, so I'm getting used to that. That's a funny thing you have to say about 30 degrees warmer. <laughs> that 30 may sound like it's not that big of a deal. Trust me, John, as someone who used to live in Mission Bay, it's a big deal. It, it, it is. And I just try to say it with a grin on my face, too. So, anyways, the, you know, when you're talking about Afghanistan and, and why we should pull out or not pull out, I don't have a specific answer, but I think there's a little bit more to the story of of why we're still in there. So when I see Russia and China, especially China trying to kind of dominate the world and and buying their way into places like Africa, they've got this this global partnership right now. And as long as they can distract, knowing that we're the righteous people of the planet, all of our resources, all of our money is going to be going into that region and really distracting from the benefits that we could be either be reaping or or contributing to the rest of the world. Because we're not rebuilding so many things. We're just trying to prop things up. And I, I'm confident that if Russia and China and the U.S. and India said, let's knock the crap out of these guys and let's stop them today, if we unified together truly as a world, we could knock that out and it would be done with. I, of course. Other ulterior motives. Of course. There's a lot of other motives and a lot of other power structure interests here. And there's a lot of regional interest here, too, uh, John. Um, the Taliban just announced that they have taken over control of a key western Afghanistan district, which is a border crossing with Iran. The mullahs of Iran support the Taliban. How comforting is that, knowing that Iran has been providing them with weaponry, including IEDs? So I agree, I think, wholeheartedly with you about us throwing good money after bad there to the point where it becomes bad money after good. 
I, I think that's right. The timing is what I'm wondering about. And I have to wonder about the tactics to ask if we've ever really fought in the way we need to fight there. I um, I was worried after 9-11, John, you tell me where you are on this. I was worried after 9-11 that we would not be able to fight the kind of war we had to fight to have the kind of victory we said we wanted just because of the culture of America, just because of te- the power of television and the power of media that, you know, the days of those big, large battles in World War II were long gone. Any month in World War II was was greater American loss of life than all the years of Afghanistan or all the years of Iraq, uh, right? And in some cases put together. But the country couldn't handle it. The country could not handle that. Agreed. This is a huge, huge valid point that you're bringing up. It, it is not a typical war. And look at look what's, what's happening from Russia taking over and doing a lot of the... Um, uh, of our electronic systems and our banking and, and the way that they're they're manipulating that, that's the war that we can't stop right now. Right. Or, or even foreign entities buying property throughout the United States and knowing that property values continue to go up. It's a genius investment. You know, why, why, why do we do that? Well, well I, I, I agree with you, and I worry about a situation, John, where we will have a headline on September 1st after the full withdrawal from Afghanistan. I just wonder, you're making a good point. You're talking about cyber warfare as well, which we seem to not be doing very well at. We can't protect our infrastructure from the Russians or at least from uh, Russian agents that are engaged in cyber attacks on America institutions. I'm worried about a headline September 1st in a major magazine or newspaper, Can America Win Wars Anymore? I'm really worried about that headline. I truly am. I, I don't know how old you are. Sound of your voice tells me you remember the mid to late 70s. It was not a good time for America and her allies. And that is uh, that is correct. Well, you're, you read my voice very well. Yes, I, I guess I could you know, change my octaves a little bit. You know, <laughs> not not on this show. <laughs> not on this show. <laughs> You can identify. I guess you can identify as anything these days. If you want to identify as a twenty-five-year-old, you can. Uh, Isn't that that the truth? You just say it. Therefore, you are. Yeah. Yeah. But but I think the the key point that you mentioned is Iran. What what motivation could there ever be to have Russia or China or any country on the planet fund somebody like Iran and give them weaponry, other than to fight the United States? Right. There's no other. There's no other balance. There's no other logic in my. Uh, yeah, who wants Afghanistan? Who wants a foothold there? What is you know? Unless you care about opium, I guess. Yeah. Well. <laughs> All right, John. Um, here's my gig. I really liked your call, and uh, I want you to call us again, even if you're in San Diego. It's really easy. We have this app. It's totally free. You can listen to the show. Or the station anytime you want. 960 The Patriot app. Download it on your phone. We'd love to have you regularly, John. You're fantastic. Thanks, John. And I'm curious about people who, in the midst of 100,000-degree weather, leave San Diego for Phoenix. That's just that's not something you see a lot of. Business. Strictly business. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but by the way, I, I, I am wearing a, a T-shirt right now that says Greer. Okay. Eric works. It was like camping up there in May. And of course, you know, you come down the hill and it's, you know, 110. Yeah. Up there it's 75 degrees. Yeah, it's, no, there, we, we have a few cool places. We do. We just don't have Pacific Ocean, John. 
or uh, San Diego still as conservative as it once was. I don't know if we have that anymore either. I'm not sure. I guess next a year from November will tell. Bill, how much I lost my clock. How much time do I have here? Well, let me put in a word for one of our sponsors before we return, and that's Trades Unlimited for all your roofing needs. Trades Unlimited does repairs, new roofs, installations, inspections, you name it. I've used them uh, uh, most recently and loved them. They're everything they say they are, which is why they have an A-plus rating at the Better Business Bureau. Right now, they want to tell you about their work on foam roofs. If you have a home, a foam roof, it's a great time for foam Recoding. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. Do it with Trades Unlimited for any and all of your roofing needs. Don't wait until it's too late. Give them a call right now at 480-483-1775. If you're thinking about your roof, I want you to think about Trades Unlimited. If you don't want to call them, they're available online at tradesunlimited.com. Really good folks. I've spent a lot of time with them. I can tell you. This is a great company. Trades Unlimited for all your roofing needs. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Stephen Hayward over at Powerline says, um, writes that uh, he's found a real head scratcher here. You know these. Uh, what, what did we? How did we put it the other day? The Leviathan that ends up eating its own tail. Here's a head scratcher from the Chronicle of Higher Education about Mills College, which is a uh, all women's college in California, just about as left wing as you can find. It's merging with Northeastern University, one of the largest private colleges in the country, in Massachusetts, in a desperate bid. To survive, but the item in the story reports that Mills was also the first college to allow students to choose a gender so long as they chose female. Remember, it's a woman's college. You wonder why it's struggling. You wonder why it's struggling. Turns out what it means in practice is this so that if you have male anatomy, but call yourself a woman, you can go to Mills College. If you have female anatomy and you call yourself a man, you can't. This isn't as serious an issue as it is for elementary and high schools that are now struggling with issues of locker rooms and bathrooms, which is an issue that I think the left doesn't want us talking about any more than they want us talking about the truth of January 6th and what happened there any more than they want us talking about COVID, the coronavirus, the mitigation measures, uh, the mitigation methods. There's a, a whole Series of things the left doesn't want us talking about. And it dawned on me, too, to go back to my Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn and read where he says, In keeping silent about evil, 
and burying it so deep within us that no sign of it appears on the surface, we end up implanting it, and it will rise up a thousandfold in the future. When we neither punish nor reproach evil, we are thereby ripping the foundations of justice from beneath new generations. Don't cease talking about the offense you take from this notion of children being able to choose their identity and thus bathrooms and locker rooms and everything else. January 2017, National Geographic put a nine-year-old transgender on the cover in a whole issue dedicated to the transgender movement. People who dismissed it and thought it was a fad are of the same mindset that dismissed critical race theory in the colleges and universities in the 80s and thought it was a fad. Well, it's here in force now.